invite you all now to open your Bibles in the book of Psalms, and we're going to read Psalm 30, uh, 24, Psalm 24, as we have been doing on the evening services, I've been preaching connected passages to themes connected with the book of Esther that we have been going through in the morning, and I hope that you will, even as we read the text, you already pick up some of the themes that we discussed even this morning. So, now hear and receive this with love and with attention and with reverence. This is the word of God for you. Thus says the Lord, Psalm 24. The Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. One of the great, greatest, if I may say so, motivational speeches of the last century is only one paragraph long. And like our text today, it talks about a parade. It goes like this. Quote, I thought this was kind of interesting. At first, I thought it was, I couldn't believe it, but it's actually true. I'm talking about the Philadelphia Eagles parade after the game. It's 11 o'clock, in case any of you want to attend it. It will go from Broad Street, up Washington Avenue, past City Hall, then down to Benjamin Franklin Parkway, and we'll end up at the Art Museum." End quote. Those are the words of Bill Belichick, legendary coach of the New England Patriots. On February 5th, 2004, the night before Super Bowl 39 against the Philadelphia Eagles. His point with that speech is that the Eagles were so sure they were going to win that game, that they had already planned their victory parade. Will the Patriots allow that to happen, was his point. Are you so weak, he was asking his players, that whoever plays against you can already plan their victory celebrations? To stir up his team, Belichick even gives them the time the parade will start in case they want to attend it. The rest 
as some of you here are painfully aware, is history. A few weeks later, a victory parade was indeed held, but not on Broad Street or the Art Museum, but in the streets of Boston, Massachusetts. Psalm 24 talks about a parade, which creates a similar feeling in his readers, as well as uh, the same kind of feeling that Bill Belichick intended for his players. It talks about the inevitable march of those who will one day follow a victorious leader, will see the defeat of their enemies that threat their own existence, and it culminates within the re with the reunion of the God who created the universe and his beloved chosen people. Psalm 24 tells us everything to know we need to know about this parade, who is involved, what is at stake, and why it matters. And after reading this psalm, we can only ask ourselves the Belichickian question. Will you be a part of the victory parade? In summary, I believe Psalm 24 teaches us that Jesus Christ is the victorious leader leading us to abundant and eternal life. Again, I believe this is what we can take from this text tonight. Jesus Christ is the victorious leader, victorious leader, leader leading us to abundant and eternal life. We'll see that in three brief points. And the first one is we should trust God for he is our master and maker. We'll see that in and verses 1 and 2, again, we should trust God for he is our master and our maker. Psalm 24 begins with the glorious declaration that everything belongs to God because he created everything that exists. Planets and cells, supernova, supernovas and grasshoppers, Mount Fuji, the Swiss Alps and the Poconos all the Davids and all the Elizabeths. We are all his because we are all his creation. And this reality contained here in two simple verses explain why we say that we must glorify God and why we can enjoy him forever. He is the sovereign owner of all the earth's fullness. These words put all reality, everything that we see, that we touch, that we take in, into place. This life has meaning and purpose because it belongs to Him who creates and who rules over all, who made land out of nothing and set it upon the foundations of the waters. He is the one who knows where the roads go and where the river ends. The good things we enjoy in this life, they all point us to God who created them, the sovereign Lord who created us to enjoy Him by enjoying those good things that He created. In a world where people struggle to find meaning for their lives, where people are willing to try anything that will provide the slightest taste of significance and fulfillment. This simple realization that we were created for God, by God, through Him, and for Him, 
can have a powerful effect on our ears. A fiction writer, David Mitchell, brought my attention to this fact in a fresh way that I will never forget. In his famous book, Cloud Atlas, he says this about our quest for meaning and happiness in this world. Three or four times only in my youth did I glimpse the joyous isles, the island of happiness, before they were lost to fogs, depressions, cold fronts, ill winds, and contrary tides. I mistook them for adulthood, assuming they were a fixed feature in my life's voyage, voyage, sorry. I neglected to record their latitude, their longitude, their approach. Young, ruddy, fool. What wouldn't I give now for a never-changing map of the ever-constant ineffable to possess, as it were, an atlas of the clouds? You see, God's creational sovereignty that we find in these two little verses, God's creational sovereignty over everything should comfort us when we feel that we will never set foot again on the island of happiness. It reassures us that this world is not random or meaningless since there is someone who puts stars in place and clouds on their courses. You might be tired and discouraged today, bereaved, because things seem out of control. You might feel tiny and weak as you face the prospect of climbing up Mount Problems or hiking through the never-ending Bill's Trail tomorrow. Maybe you feel like your children will never listen to you. Your parenting has been in vain. Perhaps you feel like your spouse couldn't care less about your efforts to keep simply the house up. Maybe you just feel like you've been doing it all right, but life keeps throwing fast and curveballs at you simultaneously. For all of us, frustrated for not being in control of anything, Psalm 24 says, yes, you are not. But that is by design. God, God alone, is sovereign over life and death. You are not in control. He is. It is God who tells you who you are, gives you an identity, has placed you in your family, at your church, at your job, at your school. You are part of God, God's atlas of reality. When he unveiled the universe as if it was a scroll, he saw it, saw in it, the paths you would walk this week and the valleys of shadow that you are all enduring. This first section of Psalm 24 then tells us that we can trust him and then we go. He knows where we are all going. So go, enjoy the gifts he puts before you, and trust that he knows whatever may come. 
Your call is simply to do everything you can to bring glory to His name, to honor Him who created you, because we have been reassured that the results, the fruits, the legacy, that is up to Him. He brings up the child. He converts the hearts of the stubborn stubborn child, spouse, boss. And the quicker you realize that he is in control, not you, the faster you will stop despairing when things do not go your way. But the question then is how? How can I find meaning in God? How can I be a faithful servant to him? How can I know that I'm doing what he expects of me? Well, we'll see that in our second point because he tells us plain out what he expects of us. And you might not like what we're going to hear. Our second point is we cannot be in God's presence. We are not worthy. Again, we cannot be in God's presence. We are not worthy. We see that in verses 3 through 6. In these next sections, the psalmist asks and answers these questions that we have been grappling with. How can I find the axe in the map of reality that marks the treasure? In a way, I believe this is the most important question one can ever ask oneself. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Because these, these questions mean, if God is everything he said he is in verses 1 and 2, and we know he is, how then can we find him? At the time of the Psalms, God's holy place that is mentioned here was his tabernacle, his dwelling place among his people. It was his resting place at the top of Mount Zion, God's holy hill. The tabernacle and later the temple when it was built was a visible sign of an invisible promise God had made to Israel, his people, repeated throughout the Old Testament, I will be your God and you will be my people. They had a way to find him and to be with him. In a sense, you can say that God set heaven on earth when he told his people to build the tabernacle and promised to be with them there. You see, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle served as a symbolic representation, a miniature model, so to speak, of heaven and the heavenly courts. This portable sanctuary was designed according to God's precise instructions, again, for He is the creator of heaven as much as He is of the earth. So the tabernacle's layout and specific elements, such as the Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat, the Holy of Holies, mirror, mirrored the Havlin Helm and God's dwelling place. The rituals and sacrifices performed by the priests within this tent were meant to represent the people's ascension to the divine presence, to God himself. Its structure emphasized the separation between the holy and the common, providing a tangible and sensible connection between us and God, between creature and creator. 
So by following all God's instructions about how to approach that temple, how to go up that hill and meet him there, the Israelites demonstrated their obedience and their reverence. And that allowed them to experience a glimpse, a mere glimpse of heaven's majesty and holiness through meeting God at that tent. So then with this Old Testament background in mind, you see, you start to realize the weight of these questions about who will go up the mountain. Psalm 24 is not talking merely about religious pilgrimage. The spiritual pilgrimage to the top of Mount Zion points us to something way more profound. Who can stand in the presence of God? Who can be in the presence of the Creator God and talk to Him like a friend, as He mentioned somewhere else in the Old Testament? And then verse, verses 4 and 6 tells us the answer. And it should be very straightforward. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? They whose actions, are, whose actions and intentions are pure, whose hands are not stained by innocent blood, which already rules out everyone who has murdered someone, right? Which, according to Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount, already rules out everyone who hated someone in their hearts and minds, which I find hard to believe. It will not rule out every single one of us in this room tonight. Who shall stand in his holy place? They whose souls are inclined and dedicated to worship and praise what is good. Those who do not, do not lift, lift up their souls, who do not find the comfort of their existence in things other than God. They who do not trust the promises of this world for a peaceful and quiet life, but trust God's. Those who do not swear deceitfully when they fail to identify themselves as part of God's people. They who do not bow to the princes and rulers of our world waiting for them to save them for their troubles. They who do not seek to preserve their lives, but spend them at the service of God through serving His people. And again, as we go through that list, I find it very hard to believe. These qualifications will not rule out every single one of us tonight. And I say us because I'm including myself in it. And then if you pay attention enough and you're following along, it should remind you that, of course, this should rule out our dear Mordecai and Esther. They are not our hope of salvation. The point here is clear, and it's something that I tried to talk to you this morning. Psalm 24 is not about you or me. It is not about Esther, Mordecai, Moses, or Abraham. Psalm 24 is not a doctor's prescription to heal your existential wounds so you can walk into God's presence and say, here I am, I did all that you required, let me in. 
Psalm 24, especially this middle section, should be as terrible to any of us as Haman's edict of destruction. We all failed to fulfill God's standard of righteousness. And now we are cast away from his holy hill. We can never return to where we come from. So we are condemned to live away from our Creator eternally. This is sad, sad news. And it should make, should make you take a deep dive inside and take inventory of your recent walk. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, we read in Scripture. And if holiness is what Psalm 24 describes, and I tell you now, it is, you will never see God. You cannot sojourn to God's tent. You cannot dwell on God's holy hill. What awaits you is those two soldiers behind a hazardous with axe in hands. So then we keep asking the question then, if God is so good, as we've seen in the beginning, and I am so bad, as we have just seen, how can I be in His presence? How can I live before Him? The text talks about a generation that seeks His face and He receives blessings from Him. It even talks about salvation. Please, tell me now, how can be a part of that group? Thank God, literally, this will be our last point tonight. We are led to God by Christ, our victorious leader. Again, we are led to God by Christ, our majestic and victorious leader. We see that in verses 7 through 10. You start to read those verses, and you get the sense that there's a parade coming. Can you hear it? Someone announces, knocks at the gates. When all hope in being in God's presence seems lost, open up the gates. And maybe the guards at the top may ask, who are you that I should open the gates? Well, my friends, let me tell you something. The king of glory is coming. Who is this king of glory? Maybe the pesky resistant guard may still ask. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He is the one knocking at the gates. The image of this passage is of someone with the authority to open up doors and gates, whoever he faces them. His mere presence and existence warrants an open path before him. And then on top of it, of it, just his mere existence, his deeds, victories, and power speaks for themselves, speak for themselves. He's the leader of an army, coming in glory after defeating his enemies. If we were afraid no one would be able to go and present himself before God, the king of glory comes and commands the ancient heavenly doors to be open before him so that he may come in. 
As we have seen earlier today, Esther did something very similar to this when she entered the presence of the emperor looking to intercede for her people. Yet Esther could only do so much for only so many of God's people. As we have seen in the previous point, neither Esther nor any other faith hero of the Bible could go before God's presence on their own. But fortunately for you and for me, the Bible does speak of someone who can. Think about it in terms of Psalm 24. The New Testament tells us that everything was created. Everything that we read in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 24 was created by Jesus and through Jesus. With that in mind, Jesus being the creator of everything, setting stars in places and clouds on their courses. Think, for example, of the scene at the cross. There, you see the living creator, word of God, he whose hands knitted in the wombs of their mothers the lives of those men who now pierced his hands to a wooden cross. And as he restrains himself from using his power to zap them out of existence, the blood that flows from his hands, his own blood, is pure and innocent. There is blood on his hands, but it, it's innocent blood. Behold the man, friends, the God-man whose hands are clean. And if he did not destroy those spiritual Amalekites who conspired to kill him, he who was the only true and perfect son of God, the true and perfect Jew, the true and perfect Israel, what did he do when they were destroying his life? He prayed for them. He interceded before God for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And few sentences in this world describe me better. This is unexpected, this prayer from Jesus. As if Esther had gone before Ahasuerus to, play, to plead, not for her or for the Jews, but for Haman's life. Can you imagine that? Forgive those who harm me, he said. Behold the man again, my sisters and my brothers, the God-man whose heart truly is pure like the requirements in Psalm 24. Jesus, my friends, is the perfect king of glory. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We read about him in Romans. He was pure and clean. He lived a life of purity and holiness we could not have lived. And then, having died a perfect sacrifice to pay for our sins, he covers us with his righteousness and his purity. And now, because of that, because of him, 
we can have access to God. We can be in the presence of God. We can be here tonight praying for those who are not here bringing their names and their lives before the mercy seat. Verses 7 through 10 are nothing short of a description of Jesus' ascension as our forerunner, as the Bible says, entering the real heavenly tabernacle, opening up the gates of heaven and coming through victorious. There, he presents a perfect sacrifice before God on our behalf. He is the one who truly ascended to the holy hill of God, and he brings us with him as our names are engraved in his pierced hands. Through him, because of him, and in him, we receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation, as we read in verse 5. We become then the generation of those who seek the face, the God of Jacob. Because of him, then, we can look at our troubles just waiting for us to go back home tonight to assail us and cast them upon him. You don't need to be a perfect parent. You don't need to have everyone's approval. You don't need to work even harder at church on Sunday to ease your conscience for all the things you did during the week. You don't need any of that. He paid the price. His death paid the price for your failure to meet his standards. And, his, and in his resurrection and ascension, he made it possible for you to run, not just to see or to look, but to run to the almighty creator God when despair threatens to take over with the assurance that he will hear your cries in bed tonight that prevent you to go to sleep. Because Jesus went ahead of us. Our prayers go to him. Our prayers to him go as high as God's heavenly hill. As the victorious king of glory, he went ahead of us to be with God in the celestial holy place. And those who bow to him, who accept his scepter of grace and the cross, who put their faith and hope in him, follow suit. As the letter to the Hebrews explained to us, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind a curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He goes and we follow behind our troubled hearts can only find rest in Jesus, our forerunner, the hope of our souls. Come, he says to you tonight. Join him and march along with his people through his spirit towards eternal life with the Father. Blessing 
righteousness, and salvation waits for you on the other side of those ancient gates. Let us pray. Almighty, merciful God, we acknowledge for ourselves and we confess before you that which is the truth. That if you decided to consider our merits and worthiness, we would not be worthy to lift our eyes to heaven and bring our prayers before you. Our consciences accuse us and our sins testify against us. And we also know that you are a righteous judge who punishes the sin of those who transgress your commandments. But, O oh Lord, since you commanded us to call upon you in every affliction and promised in your speakable mercy to hear our prayers, not for the sake of our merits, which, of which there are none, but for the sake of the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have set forth as our mediator and advocate. So we forsake all other help and take our refuge to your mercy alone. Forgive us, Father. We so ask in the name of Jesus Christ and his people say together, Amen.